Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. And our topic is to teach new doctrine. This is another of the purposes of the Lord's first coming, meaning when Jesus was born into this world, was to teach new doctrine. Uh, there's a very interesting story that we'll look at at the beginning of this Bible study where Jesus goes into a synagogue, the first time he's ever taught in one, apparently. And during the course of the service, someone who has an unclean spirit freaks out and starts shouting. And the Lord kicks the evil spirit out of the person. And the crowd says, what new doctrine is this? It's a very interesting response to watching someone kick an evil spirit out of somebody right during church. What new doctrine is this? So join me this evening, would you good friends, for looking at the new doctrine. What is the Lord's new doctrine when he was in this world? Let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for bringing us together in your name. We thank you for your word and for this opportunity to plummet steps to try to understand its meaning and the message it has for us. Amen. Thank you everyone for coming, sending love to those of you who are out there online and getting the audio and so on. And uh, let me read something about who we are in case you're new. Spirit and Life Bible Study looks at the Bible through a Swedenborgian lens, meaning in alignment with the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, born in 1688, died in 1772. The name Spirit and Life comes from Jesus himself, who says that his words are spirit and they are life, John 6, 63. Spirit, meaning that his words have a spiritual and heavenly meaning and purpose, and life, which we take to mean that his words are alive, a name to bring us to life by teaching us how we are to live if we wish to become spiritual and heavenly. And since Jesus is, quote-unquote, the word made flesh, John 1, 14, what he says of his words applies, we believe, to all the words of the Bible. They all teach who he is and how we can get from hell to heaven. So, great pleasure to be with you, friends. New doctrine. Let's dive into this story in Mark, shall we? So let's go to Mark chapter 1. Mark uh, is always, in the old King James, it keeps using that word straight away, doesn't it? Uh, I think in the new King James, it's immediately and, and, and so on. Uh, it has this immediacy and pow, pow, pow. Right in Mark chapter 1 here, uh, Jesus gets baptized. And then in verse 10, straightway coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opened. And then by verse 12 in chapter 1, the Spirit has already driven him out into the wilderness. He's very quickly tempted in one verse there. He was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Boom, right on to the next thing. And let's start at verse 14 there. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God mm. and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Yes, I'm very interested in this uh, repent first and then believe in the gospel. You would think it would be, the, wouldn't you believe in the gospel and then the gospel tells you to repent, so you'd repent. Uh, but it's repent first, as if repentance will help you believe in the gospel. And this opening message that he says in his ministry is the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And then he calls uh, James and John 
uh, and they leave their nets. And then look at verse 21. This is his first preaching that I alluded to a moment ago. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. He went into the synagogue and he taught. So he was teaching in the synagogue. So this is in the, in the worship context, you know. Go on. And they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. And those of you who have the old King James, you might notice there that the word is doctrine. They were astonished at his doctrine. The word doctrine and the word teaching are the same. They're, they're essentially the same in the Greek. There are two words for teaching in Greek. Didache, which refers to the act of teaching, and then didaskalia, which is what is taught, you know. And they're very much, for those of you Latin geeks out there, like Swedenborg's use of the word doctrina, the noun, uh, doctrine, and doctrinale, doctrinals, or that, you know, doctrinalia, uh, in instances of something that is taught, teaching and an instance of something taught. So they're astonished. That's how they reacted at his teaching. So he stood up there and taught, and in one verse, they're astonished. Right? Everything's happening. Boom, boom, boom in Mark. And they're astonished at his teaching. And why were they astonished? For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Mm. So the first thing that stood out was that this person knows what he's talking about, and he's just laying it out there. It's not, it's not sort of, well, maybe we see this, or it's not conjectural, or it's not whatever, or hesitant, or hedging. Uh, it has authority. Go on. Now, look at what happens right during their worship service. Now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. What kind of spirit? Unclean. Okay, he had an unclean spirit. Okay. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mm. So causing a disturbance during the worship service. <clears throat> and it's interesting, the use of the plural, isn't it? Mm -hmm. This is a person with an unclean spirit, and yet it sounds like there are a bunch of them somehow. Most of the statements are in the plural. Let us alone, as if there's a whole bunch of unclean spirits in there. And what have we to do with you? Now, they know exactly who he is, Jesus of Nazareth. They name him. They call him the Holy One of God. They're, they're fearful that he's come to destroy them. So this is... Not like your normal church, you know, you're not like sort of snoozing through the Sabbath here. There, there's someone shouting there about, you know, he's got an unclean spirit and he's shouting about uh, Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? Is he flustered? Is his first time, you know, does he sweat? Uh, is he worried or confused about what's going on? What does he do? Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Now, isn't that interesting that although in what they said and what was said, like this is the person who had the unclean spirit said it, and yet the way it was said, he's really kind of channeling these unclean spirits, isn't he? And it's in the plural, and they're all saying, leave us alone. So they're connected with the person. It's almost like you can't tell where the person begins and where the unclean spirits end. Uh, but Jesus doesn't talk to the person the, the, the man with the unclean spirit mm -hmm. is in the third person, as they say, right? Mm -hmm. He speaks directly to the spirit, and he says, come out of him. Like, he draws a distinction. So to the person, it's all mixed up. Evil spirit, the person, what is all mixed up. Who knows what's what? And are there many, or there's only one, or whatever. 
But to Jesus, it's very clear. And he says, you be quiet and come out of him. So he's not even taking the situation at face value. He's getting into what's going on behind it, uh, that he knows that there's an evil spirit involved, and tells him to get out of there. So what happens? And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him oh. and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Which must have been exciting to see as part of a worship service. Mm. Uh, so he gets convulsed. So the evil spirit doesn't just go, oh, okay, I'll leave. You know, sorry for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, no, it, it convulses him and he's crying out with a loud voice and then boom. Somehow you can tell that the spirit just went right out of him. He may have been quite sort of uh, just limp and exhausted afterwards or, or who knows what. Uh, but you could tell that the evil spirit had come out of him. And how did all the other people in the synagogue react to this rather unusual worship service? Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? What is this? What is this? What just happened there? What, what was that? You know, and what else do they say? What new doctrine is this? Isn't that fascinating? Now, I, I just, it's hard to put myself in that situation, but I just imagine if I thought of 20 things to say in that situation, none of them would have the word doctrine in them. Uh, I would say, that's amazing, or how did he do that, or what is going on, or something like that. I wouldn't say, what new doctrine is going on here? You know, it's just an interesting way to express it, isn't it? And how do they clarify their point at the end of that verse? Uh, what new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. There's that word again. Isn't that what it's set up in verse 22, that he taught them with authority? Not only was his teaching with authority, and this does seem to be part of his teaching, like it's rolled right into the teaching, and we will now have a demonstration. Person <laughs> cries out, kick out the unclean spirit. And, and so they, what, what is that? We've never seen teaching like this. And again, it's with authority. Not only is he speaking with authority, but with authority he commands the unclean spirits. And the astounding thing is the, the spirit left. He did what he, you know, he convulsed him and made him cry out and everything, but he, but he got out of there. It's absolutely amazing. What is this? And just read verse 28, if you will. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Yeah, there it is again, that sort of theme of uh, Mark is that everything, bang, 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 bang. You know, just, we're, we're not even halfway through chapter one and all this has already happened. You know, all these things are happening so fast. So it's an interesting, interesting question. What new doctrine is this? Uh, I would have to say, friends, that doctrine that can kick an evil spirit out of somebody on the spot, that's some good doctrine right there. You know, a lot of doctrine might strike some people as boring or how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but kicking an evil spirit out of someone in public, uh, that's some doctrine. That's some interesting doctrine. And it's fascinating. They say, and it's not just any doctrine, it's a new doctrine. Like they know this is something new. This is a new, something new is happening here. We, we, never, we never heard a, a sermon like this before. We've never seen anything like that before. There is only one other place in the Old New Testaments that uses the phrase new doctrine. 
per se, and that is in Acts. So let's go to Acts. You turn to the right past John, and you'll get to Acts, and I want to go to chapter 17. Now this is Paul. So this is after Jesus' resurrection, and Paul has gone. He's going out and doing all this evangelization work and, and uh, evangelizing all these different places, and he's gone to Greece. Uh, let's start here at verse 16, because this is an interesting little passage. We'll read at some length here. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Yes, to idols, to idolatry. Uh, a lot of idol worship there. So he was just waiting for these other people to arrive, but he kind of couldn't take it. He just like, eh, I've got to speak out about this idolatry. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Here's an interesting point of comparison with that other story. That other one happened in a synagogue. Here, this is in a synagogue with Jews, but so there were Jews who were abroad there in Greece. And, but also, he went into the marketplace where everybody would meet and you'd, you'd talk. You know, that's where new ideas and exchange is going on. So... He's there in the, in the marketplace and talking with people. Okay, what kind of people was he talking to? Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Oh, I see. Not just someone wanting to pick up a rutabaga, but you've got Epicurean <laughs> and Stoic philosophers are hanging out in the marketplace. Okay, good. Uh, so they encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, what, what is he trying to say? I, I don't understand what he's saying. So they call him a babbler. That's nice. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because mm. he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Yeah, so interesting that they took Jesus to be a god, right? That's interesting. So he seems to be proclaiming some strange gods that we don't know about. So what do they do? And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? Isn't that interesting? So there's the other instance in all of Scripture of the words new doctrine, that they take him into this place to have sort of a hearing and to say, could you explain this new doctrine to us? What now here, this is doctrine in a more, I would say, more normal setting where you're talking about teachings, ideas. Uh, it's a strange word to use of kicking out an evil spirit, an unclean spirit. But here it's used of his teachings. And what does it say in verse 20? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Yes, strange things to our ears. New doctrine equals strange things to our ears, okay? Therefore we want to know what these things mean. Yeah, so they're curious. They're, they, they think he's babbling, you know, but they're, they're interested, you know, like, I, I don't know, just tell me what you're talking about. Go on. Uh, this verse is amazing to me. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but <laughs> either to tell or to hear some, some new thing. Aha. That was the coin of the realm. Tell me something I haven't heard before. So they're very interested. So they wanted either to tell or to hear some new... Oh, you heard the latest? Oh, this is what's going on. Um, let me ask you a little question, friends. Uh, do we, do we live in a culture that's sort of interested in news, would you say? 
Would you say there's quite a lot of appetite for news? Some of it doesn't seem terribly newsworthy all the time, but there are 24-hour channels that just go on. Sometimes there's a disaster and some news channel will turn to nothing but that, even though they never find the plane. It's on the air for months at a time. You know, it, it's amazing. that, that um, it, We seem to have this great appetite. And Swedenborg, when he went to the spiritual world, he said there are a lot of people up there. That's like their life, is they just want to hear something new. Uh, now, it is the case, is it not, that our brains are kind of hardwired to be interested in the new. Our senses and everything have to be efficient. And so they pretty quickly go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that person. Oh, oh yeah, I know that person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, who's that? I don't know that person. And your brain is interested, you know, who, who's the new person? What, what's going on here? Uh, in experiences, you know, it's like somebody serves you ice cream and it's purple and you say, I've never seen purple ice cream before. It, it's just something new. So whatever it is, our brains are kind of wired that way. But something weird has happened if your entire life is nothing but just what's new. Like, doesn't matter what it is, <laughs> whether it has any value, whether it's true, whether it's edifying, it's just new. Okay? Okay, well, that's enough for us. So I think we live in a culture that's even worse than this one that's being criticized here by the Athenians and these strangers. They spent all their time in nothing else, it says, but to tell or to hear some new thing. So they're, they're intrigued by what, what Paul is saying, even though they have maybe a certain critical attitude to it. So let's hear what, what Paul says. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Mm. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Yes, an altar to the unknown, just, just to sort of cover, <laughs> just in case you missed one. You know, uh, altar to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Which I think is very crafty, very, you know, if you had to present something to these people, he's, he's done his tour of town and he saw, oh, there's an altar to the unknown God, oh, that's interesting. And so w w he wants to make a connection between those two things. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, mm. nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life breath and all things. Yes, right. He's the giver of all things. He doesn't really need our, oh, I gave you some flowers or something like that. You know, he doesn't need offerings. He's, he's fine already. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Yes, so they're groping for something that's actually not that far away. And then he has this beautiful phrase here. For in him we live and move and have our being. Yes, that's not at all distant. We live and move and have our being in him. And look at who he's quoting here. As also some of your own poets have said. So he quotes the Greek poets. Now this is good, good preaching. You know, if you're doing evangelization work in some other country, you know, this is an interest, interesting model about how to do it. 
uh, don't quote your scriptures, quote their scriptures, use their altar and, and so on. Go on. Your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Yes, so you see what he's doing. He's going after all those idols that they're worshiping. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, mm. but now commands all men everywhere to repent. To do what? Repent. Oh, aha. Uh -huh. So all that idol worship was one thing, but now God is commanding everyone, everywhere, the Greeks, everyone, to repent. Uh, so that's the nature of his message. Now, isn't it interesting that in the course of describing this new doctrine, he gets around to repentance. Again, there's an idea of the nature of God and who he is and everything. And then he winds around to the idea of repentance. Isn't that a little bit similar to the idea of casting out that unclean spirit? That there was an unclean spirit and the Lord drives, drives him out. Very, very interesting. All right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this idea. There is this idea, isn't there, um, uh, about Jesus' first coming that one of its primary purposes was to take away sins, you know, to remove sins from the human race, just took them away. And some people may believe he took them away from everybody, or some people may believe he took them away from everybody who believes in him, everybody who has faith in him, he took away their sins. Uh, but uh, the situation seems a little more nuanced and complex than that, given the fact that it seems like there's just... I mean, if you brought someone in because you had a mold problem in your house, and then after they left, you saw and smelled all this mold in your house, you'd think they hadn't done the job that they said they were going to do. Is there any sin left in the world? There's a little bit. I think I can still smell it. There's, there's a little bit still here, I think. It's not, doesn't seem to be gone completely. But is it gone completely from Christians? Like people who are baptized as Christian, they, there's no, like Christian countries are known for their sinlessness, right? No? Oh, that's right. As Swedenborg says, they're known for their quarreling, drunkenness, and adultery. That's what they're known for. Oh, okay. So the sin didn't quite get cleaned up. Well, then what happened if Jesus came into the world to deal with that? And if Jesus is the person we just saw in that story in Mark where he just says, first time out of, the, out of the starting gate, he says, get out of him to an evil spirit, and the evil spirit just has to leave immediately. Why is that mold of evil still in our house? What's, what's the deal? If, if it wasn't that Jesus sort of took it away on the cross, then what exactly did he do? Well, let's look at a couple of scriptures about this. Turn back to the end of Matthew Matthew chapter 28, this is a, a well-known passage where Jesus, after he's resurrected, he meets with the disciples. It's a very brief statement, uh, but he just gives them kind of the whole gospel ends with just these three verses of what he's doing, what happened, and what we're supposed to do about it. Let's start at verse 18, which is surely one of Swedenborg's favorite verses in all of Scripture. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Interesting, there's that word again, authority, in the old King James, power. He preached with authority, he kicked evil spirits out with authority, and now he's proclaiming that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. All, all authority. It doesn't seem like I have gained some power in certain areas. It, it's all power everywhere. That, that's what he gained. So what are we supposed to do about that? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Oh. Okay. Make disciples of all the nations. Good. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what was that first word of that last verse there? Teaching. Oh, teaching. Oh, so we're supposed to go and we're supposed to teach. What we're supposed to do out of this, doctrine means teaching. So the Lord had this new teaching. Paul had this new teaching. And we are told by the Lord to go teach. Now, there are lots of fascinating things in this passage. Some people feel that Matthew 28, 19 is the, one of the clearest pieces of evidence of a trinity of persons. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that impression is very much undermined by Jesus' statement in verse 18 that all power has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. If there are three separate persons in the Godhead, then that means God the Father has no power in heaven and no power on earth, so you really don't have to worry about Him. And the Holy Spirit has no power in heaven and no power on earth, so you don't have to worry about Him either. Uh, but if there are three aspects of one person, uh, that makes more sense. And that would also explain why in verse 20 he says, everything I've commanded and I'm with you. He doesn't say we. There's no plural pronoun in there. And when you actually see the disciples go out and baptize, they never ever literally baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They always baptize in the name of Jesus. Period. Jesus Christ or something like that. Uh, so... They're listening to him. Did they mistake what he told them to do? Or is Jesus the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That is the name. Uh, we could explain that some more, and we've had other Bible studies on that before. But part of what I wanted to emphasize tonight is that all power has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Well, if he had such authority over evil spirits, and he has all power in heaven and on earth, how is the mold still there? How, what, what's that evil doing? How, how is there still evil in our world? It seems that it's still there. Oh, well, let's look, turn to the right and go through Luke and John and uh, go off into the epistles. See if you can find Hebrews about in the middle of the epistles, halfway back to the book of Revelation. I want Hebrews chapter 7, because uh, to my mind, there's a crucial statement back here in chapter 7. Uh, it's talking about Jesus. Oh, let's pick up at uh, verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Huh. A better, sort of like new doctrine, isn't it? A better covenant. Well, what's that better covenant? We'll think some more about that in a bit. Go on. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. It's talking about the high priest in, in ancient Judaism and that he's a permanent priest. He's an unchangeable priesthood. 
And what power did that give him in verse 25? Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, what was that word? He, does it say he always saves everyone? Did it say that? He's also able to save to the uttermost. No, it said able to save. It didn't say did save. It said able to save. Isn't that what it said? That's what it said. He's able to save. He got, see, all power has been given to him in heaven and on earth that gave him the power, I like that phrase, to save to the uttermost. Like you could be saved a little bit or a medium amount or you could go for the grande, you know? Save to the uttermost. And he's able to take you all the way, like the totality of salvation. He can do it. He has that ability. Well, if he has that ability, why wouldn't he exercise it? Why wouldn't he just kick hell out of all of us? Immediately. What he does instead is he commands all men everywhere to repent, right? And that commandment suggests that we have the option of repenting or not repenting. We have the freedom. He has the power to save us, but there's something we have to do to be able to be connected with him. Okay, now let me throw in another wrinkle here. With situations like that situation in the synagogue, when Jesus got up there and a man got up with an unclean spirit and he just kicked it out of him quick time, right? In minutes, the, the, the situation's over. And Jesus, in all his healings and in all the raising from the dead and everything, there, you never do you, do you ever get a sense of a process that, oh, come back and see me in two weeks and we'll see whether we need to continue the course of treatment. And no, it's... It's done. It's just always done instantly, right? So you can see why some people got the sense that, oh, well, there's instant salvation. You know, Jesus saved that person instantly from that unclean spirit. Boom, saved, problem solved. It's permanently fixed. He'll, he'll never have that problem again. But that's not really what we're taught. Have a look at this um, what does he say in Matthew 12? Let's turn to the left to Matthew 12. That happens to be about unclean spirits. Hmm, the exact thing that we're talking about. Matthew 12, what does Jesus say in verse 43 and following there? When an unclean spirit goes out of a man. Ah, like he just did in that synagogue that we saw there. Unclean spirit goes out of him, right? The Lord drove him out, just said, get out of him. And he went right out. He convulsed him, cried out with a loud voice, got right out. So what happens after, like we don't find out what happens after that story. It just, this, the narrative moves on. But what happened to him? Was he saved forever as a result of that? What do we see here? So that when the unclean spirit's gone out of a man. He goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, what's the house? The person. Oh, the person, oh, that's right. You were such a nice, nice home. I remember fondly living in you. <laughs> Go on. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Oh, it's empty and swept because he hasn't been living there, raising all sorts of hell and disorder, right? So it's set in order, but it's empty. So what does the unclean spirit do? Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. Uh-oh. And they enter and dwell there. 
And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Oh, so this teaching does not say when the Lord kicks an evil spirit out of you, that's done, you're saved, never going to have that problem again. It doesn't say that, does it? Mm -mm. There's more to it than that, isn't there? And let's look, turn to the right to John chapter 8. This is not about an evil spirit, but John chapter 8 is about a woman who's caught in adultery. And you remember very well, whoops, I think we lost our Canadian friends on the phone there. Uh, he bends down and stoops down and, and says, let those who are without sin, you know, cast the first stone and all that. And uh, then look in verse 10. Of John 8. John 8. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Uh-huh. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go. And then did he say, you have, I have done you a special favor. I've removed from you the possibility of ever sinning again. I fixed that thing so you will never again be able to sin. Boom. Try as you might. Even if you love it, you won't be able to ever do it again. I just, I just fixed it. You know, like being spayed or something. I just, I just got rid of it. Is that what he says? No. Oh. He says, go and sin no more. Oh, so you mean she still had the ability to sin even though he took care of it. She could go back to that sin again. And so it was an important part of the whole lesson that the Lord did there to say, go and sin no more. And who would do that? Would, would he do that for her while she's asleep or something? She was going to have to work on that, right? She was going to have to work on changing her ways. You see, here's the deal. I didn't understand this for a long time, but it's starting to come into focus. That um, the reason everything the Lord did in relation to evil spirits, in relation to sickness, death, and everything was instantaneous is because that's the way it is with the Lord. The presence of the Lord, these things can't abide it. What did that guy do with the unclean spirit? Jesus standing up there preaching in the synagogue, he just freaks out, oh, you're coming to destroy me. You know, they can't stand it. They can't stand it. So the presence of the Lord, when these people were sitting in the presence of the Lord, the evil spirits just can't stick around. They, they leave. But that doesn't mean they don't know the way back. You know, when you're walking in the woods and a deer runs away from you, they, they always just come around. They just come back to where, yeah. They don't stay away. It's not like they run away and stay away. They, they were eating. They were having a good time. They just circle around. They come back. And the evil spirits do the same thing. They'll just circle around. They, I'm not saying that deer are evil. Uh, but uh, but no. there's a similarity there of the pattern of just like returning. Doesn't, isn't there a great uh, passage that says a dog returns his own vomit and a sow to, wallow, uh, to wallowing in the mire or something like that? Uh, there's a tendency, if you love that evil, you're going to go back to the evil. The presence of the Lord repels that evil, but if you love that evil, you're going to wait till the presence of the Lord goes away and then hook up with the evil again. Because you love, and that's, that's your choice. That's why the Lord had to say, go and sin no more. So he could fix things instantly. He could give people a little honeymoon, a little time off, a little break from their evil spirit, 
But if they wanted to stay in that state, which is known as salvation, they would need to do some work. That's why he preached repentance. The kingdom of God is here, but you've got to repent. Otherwise, he could have just come into the world, driven away all the evil spirits. There you go. You know, it's all done. Now the human race is all fixed. And there would be no evil. Nobody would hardly, we'd have to read a book to remember what evil was. Oh, yeah. Remember when people used to mistreat each other? Oh, it's so horrifying. Can you imagine? No, it's still, some of that still, I, I hate to hurt your innocent ears, but some of that does still go on in our world. Some people are still out there mistreating each other. Uh, there's still some evil in human heart. What the Lord did was 100% successful and absolutely powerful. All power has been given to me in heaven and earth. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. But not all of us want to come to him. I want to tell you a rather sad story, friends, that I was just reading in Emanuel Swedenborg's Spiritual Experiences. This is in volume four. And he and these angels were talking to people who had just arrived in the spiritual world. And part of Swedenborg's theology, as you may know, is that the only people in heaven and the only people in hell, all the angels, the evil spirits, they're all us. They're just ex-people in this world. And so people went into the other world and they were figuring out what's going on. And they were asking Swedenborg and the angel, well, what's the deal with heaven and hell? Swedenborg's answer was very interesting. They, what they said to these people was they said, well, here's one difference. In hell, you can go whoring and commit adultery as much as you want. In heaven, you can't. So, which would you like? Now, that is very, very interesting, isn't it? You know, and so people who had these high hopes of heaven, but it's like, ooh, but really give it up, like permanently? Are you kidding me? You know, uh, it's, it's, a real, it's a real choice. Uh, the Lord has not taken that choice away from us. And that's why he commands us to repent because he wants us to get on board. He wants us to get used to and to work with him in fighting the evil, lay that thing aside so that we can come into his presence and stay in his presence, which is called heaven and salvation and everything. That's what he wants. He's perfectly able to keep that hell away from us. But if we love it, He's not going to stop us from going back. The, the dog returns to it, vomit, and the sow wallows in the mire again. Uh, we, we'll just go right, right back in there again, uh, and he's not going to stop us. So that was helpful to me to understand why all those miracles were instantaneous, but they do not represent an instantaneous salvation. They represent the Lord's power to save, but you have to learn how to stay in his presence to get the benefit of that uh, repellent effect on evil. We really need to choose that. We, we have to make our own, our own decision. Um, and how new was this new doctrine? He talks about new doctrine. There are a lot of things in Scripture, aren't there? Let's look at some of these passages. Uh, oh, oh, let's look at Matthew chapter 9 right here. So turn to the left. These are just a few of many sort of teachings of this kind, but trying to look at how new, because it's a question that Christians have wrestled with forever, like how new is all that Christianity? Was, does that mean the whole Old Testament is meaningless and doesn't apply anymore? What does it mean? How, how, how new is it? Is it a whole new covenant? Is it a new deal? What's the deal? Okay, let's look at Matthew 9, verses 16 
Uh, let's start at verse 14 there. Oh, look at verse 13. Isn't that interesting right there? Do I hear 12? <laughs> sure, go ahead. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Yeah, someone had just asked, why does your master eat with all these sinners and bad people? And, and he mm -hmm. says it's, it's, he, he's like a doctor to their sickness. But go and learn what this means. What this means, quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mm, it's a quote from the Old Testament. Mm. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To repentance. Sinners to repentance. That's part of what the mercy is. That's mercy. But didn't come to call the righteous. They're okay. Came to call sinners to repentance. Go on. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. You see what that's saying? So the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are always doing these ritual fastings and everything. And then they notice that Jesus' disciples are just eating. They're having a great time. You know, what's going on? Is this some new, is that new doctrine? You know, what is that? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Mm. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Then they will fast. Isn't that a little bit what, like what we were just talking about, that the presence of the, in the presence of the Lord, there is this joy that evil is pushed away. There will be some more fasting, which corresponds to that repentance, that will come later when, when the Lord is not with you. Then you've got to work. Go and sin no more. Go on. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Uh-huh. For the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, uh -huh. or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So isn't this a little hint that what he's doing in this world is new wine and it needs a new wineskin it needs a new form this is new teaching there's new teaching that he's doing and you need to have something new to hold that uh, i'm jumping around here let's turn to the right to luke so go through mark to luke let's look at luke 22 uh, verse 20 this is in the last supper and it's account in luke luke 22 verse 20 yes that's okay. right um, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Yes, a new covenant. New wine, new wineskins, a new covenant. So you can understand why there was this sense of, Oh, yes, this is new doctrine. That Jesus is, is making everything new here. Uh, okay, let's look at John. Chapter 13, so turn to the right. John chapter 13, let's look at verse 34. Very well-known verse. A new commandment I give to you. Oh, there's a new commandment. Okay, there's a new commandment, new covenant, new wine, new wineskins. What's that new commandment? 
that you love one another. Okay, could you put your finger in there, good friends, and turn back to the book of Leviticus? So at the very beginning of your Bible, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 19, way, way back in the Old Testament, in the five books of Moses, in the law. Leviticus 19, verse 18. What do we read there? You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord, with small caps, which means Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what is Jesus' new commandment? That you love one that another. That you love one another. It's not, it's not tremendously new. It's not... <laughs> Strikingly groundbreaking, is it? Uh, okay, go on. What does he say? Um, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Go on. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay. Now, the only thing that is new there is that Jesus' example, as I have loved you, that is a striking example. You know, he came into the world, sacrificed his life, and so on. Uh, so that is different. But how is that a new command? You know, that's the oldest commandment in the, in the book, you know, love, love one another. How is that a new commandment? In fact, the very same John, if you turn to the right and go all the way almost back to the book of Revelation, you get to those epistles of John. And let's look at 1 John chapter 2. After Titus, yes. Okay, 1 John... 1 John, that's right. Chapter 2. Uh, look at verse 3 there. It's just an amazing statement. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. If we keep His commandments, that's right. And look down at verse 7. This is John, same John, writing to people. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you. Oh, but well, I, there's a new, I thought it was a new... But it's no, okay, it's no new commandment. Okay, okay. But an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. Yeah, that's right. It was an old commandment. And we did have it from the beginning. That's right. How could you ever have any society that didn't have the commandment? It's always been around. Okay, go on. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Yeah, the word which you heard from the beginning. Hasn't, hasn't changed. Doesn't change, right? It's divine truth. Doesn't change. Okay, verse 8. Again, a new commandment. Oh, I write to you. I was riding my bike recently, and when you go over very, very bumpy parts, I find it's good to stand up, you know, stand, use, use my arms as shock absorbers, and you know what I mean? That way you don't get banged around by the bike. Uh, you have to kind of ride that way in Scripture, don't you? <laughs> like, I'm not telling you any new, cause, well, it is new, but it isn't. <laughs> All right, thank you. Okay, good. Go on. Uh, I write... No new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The yes. old commandment is the word from which you heard from the beginning. Sorry. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Okay, good. <laughs> which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And you see the topic right here in verses 9 and 10. It's about loving your brother and hating your brother. And, you know, mm. uh, so wait a minute. We, we already had commandments about that. Uh, oh, just look in um, chapter 3 there. Chapter 3. Verse 11. 
it specifies what the message is. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Well, that's the same message that Jesus says was a new, I give you a new commandment to love one another. Uh, curious. Look at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us, as he gave us commandment. That's right. That's what he commanded us to do. Jesus commanded us. But wait a minute. What did it say when we were just looking a moment ago? I know this may be flying through this too quickly, but uh, when we read at the end of Matthew about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet the idea that they are one, there are three aspects within the one person of God, this says, Jesus gave us this commandment, and Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, you love one another. And what did it say in Leviticus 19.18, where it said, uh, love one another, it says, I am the Lord. Like, it's, that's Jehovah, you know, which is supposedly the Father, a different God by some people's estimate. Uh, it's not, it's the same person. It's the same, you know, Jesus is, is Jehovah. It's the same commandment. Uh, it's been around for a while. There are other passages like that, but isn't that fun? Is it a new commandment? Is it not a new commandment? And um, uh, you see, okay, let's, let's look at this. Let's go back to Matthew. Uh, turn to the left, get back to Matthew chapter 5, jumping all over the place tonight. Look at verse 21. This is typical of his teaching. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Yes, Exodus 20, right. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Oh, I see. And look down at verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Aha, another one of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, now, which is easier? little pop quiz. I didn't warn you about this ahead of time. Which is easier uh, to not kill somebody or to not be angry at all with them? Which is easier to not commit adultery with somebody or to not even think about committing adultery with somebody. This, isn't his teaching making it more difficult? Mm -hmm. Right? Like the bar was kind of low, all you had to do was not kill people, but now he's like, oh no, now you can't even be angry at people. What? You know, uh, don't commit adultery as opposed to don't even lust, don't even desire that, don't even think about it. Is that a new commandment? They're kind of the same commandments, aren't they? I mean, it's not like the new commandment was do commit adultery. You know, that isn't what he said. Do murder. All that's done away with. He never said that. In fact, he took that same law, repeated it, said, you've heard it that was said of old, do this. I say, move it inward. Don't even do it in your mind. Don't even contemplate it. You know, that's what he's talking about. Now, is that a new covenant? Or is that the old covenant deeper? Hmm, interesting, you know? And when I think about it, the Lord, oh, I want to read another thing. Let's go to the left. Go to the middle of your Bible. Let's look for Isaiah. 
It's to the right of the Psalms. I want to go to Isaiah chapter 58. Uh, I hope I, I can be articulate here. That would be a first, wouldn't it? Uh, let's see, where do we want to start? Uh, let's just start at the beginning of, of chapter 58 of Isaiah. And I'll Cry, try to explain why this was of interest and why it came up. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Uh -huh. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Now listen to what they say. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? I think what they're saying is we followed those commandments of the Old Testament, but you don't seem to care, they're saying to God. Go on. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for... This seems to be God's response, right? Mm. Here's the problem is that oh, oh, uh, you're beating people up. You're being nasty. Like that, That's wonderful that you're not eating food, but you're mistreating people. <laughs> you just see what I'm saying? Okay, mm. go on. You explored all your Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. <laughs> oh, well, that's not the motivation that the Lord was looking for in that fasting was to smite people with the fist of wickedness. Okay. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Mm, here's this beautiful passage. Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an, an acceptable day to the Lord? This is one of many, many teachings where the prophets question the way people have been taking the earlier teachings in the Old Testament. Hmm. It's still part of the Old Testament, uh, but it's saying, did you understand me to mean that I want you to feel bad? Is that what you thought I was commanding? That you beat yourself up, feel bad, you know, roll around in the ashes, be miserable? That's what you thought I was looking for? And then he explains what he was looking for. Is this not the fast I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness. Oh, that's what he did on that day in the church, didn't he? Boom, take the evil spirit away, yep. To undo the heavy burdens, mm. to let the oppressed go free, mm. and that you break every yoke. But how is that fasting? I don't get how that's fasting. Go on. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry mm. and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? How weird that it would be considered a fast to take bread to somebody who's hungry. Weird. Okay, go on. When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Well, isn't this sort of about being nice to other people? Kinda. Is that what it's talking about? I thought it was all about the misery. Really get into it. I'm fasting, I'm miserable, I'm doing what God ordered me to do. What, what is all this stuff about helping other people? And then what will happen? 
Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Mm. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. Oh. And your righteousness shall go before you. Mm. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Mm. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. You remember earlier on in the chapter, people were complaining that they're doing all these things and they thought they would connect them with God, but they didn't feel like he was really there. And he's saying, oh, well, if you were helping people, I'd be all about it. I'd, I'd be with you 100%. Uh, go on, go on. It, it's just a wonderful, I'll take care of you, I'll fix up the waste places and, and, and all this stuff. Uh, so even in the Old Testament teaching, there's this sense of people are misunderstanding what this teaching is about. And there are many passages like this, we don't have time to get into them tonight, but there are many passages like this that sort of disrupt your idea of the sacrifices and all that. That what the, you know, it says the sacrifices of God are broken the contrite heart, right? Uh, uh, you will not despise and that kind of thing. Um, in, and, and think about this. So it's supposedly this new covenant. Everything's new, the new doctrine. Everything's like new. And so people have taken this to mean, oh, well, the old was no good. Old Testament's no good. That teaching's bad. Don't pay any attention to it. Don't listen to that law. We don't have to follow that law. Uh, we've got a whole new deal here with Jesus. That it was all new. Yes, it's all new, and it needed to be new to get our attention. And yet, was Jesus the Word made flesh? He was the Word made flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, right? Jesus was the Word made flesh. What Word was He that was made flesh? Was it the New Testament? New Testament didn't exist for decades after he was in the world. He was the Old Testament made flesh. He was, and I would submit still is, the Old Testament. That's who he is. He, he's the Word. That's how he became that way. He didn't become the way that he was by reading the New Testament. Didn't exist yet. He got that way by reading the Old Testament and following the spirit of that law, of doing what it really meant, of doing exactly what this passage says. Be good to others. Take care of them. Heal them. I'm not looking for you to be all miserable and not eating and listening to your stomach rumbling or something. I don't care about that. Uh, the fast I'm looking for is to lay aside your sin and your self-centeredness and get out there and help some other people. That's what I'm looking for. So he became that. He became the Old Testament. So how new was it? It was just the Old Testament the way it's really supposed to be and expressed more clearly. The Old Testament is perfectly capable of driving out evil spirits. Jesus did it on the basis of everything he'd learned from the Old Testament. That's how he did it, by following the Old Testament. That's how he kicked out the evil spirit. And yet it was called new doctrine. What was new about it? It was working. Right? It was inward. It was, it, he, he embodied it. It went to a deeper level and it was kicking hell out. Uh, look, if you would, at the, all the way in the right of your Bible to Revelation. I know we're getting close to the end of time here, friends. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. These are all these four beasts and the 24 elders gathered around the throne. They fall down before the Lamb. 
And what do they do in verse 9? And they sang a new song. What kind of song? A new song. Oh, they sang a new song. Okay, they're, they're singing a new song. They're saying, you're worthy to open the book and all this kind of stuff. You've redeemed us and everything. Turn to the right to Revelation chapter 14, verse 3. They Here they are, and there's 144,000. And what do they do? They sang, as it were, a new song before the oh, throne. As it were? As it were. Well, what are you saying, dear reader? Was it a new song? Or was it an as it were new song? <laughs> like when a friend of yours gets a car and you say, oh, is that a new car? And they say, yeah, it's a new car. I mean, it's not a new, new car, you know. <laughs> I mean, right? New for you. Yeah, right. <laughs> new for you. And somewhere in this book, it talks about the song of Moses. It's not really a new song. It's not really a new covenant it's, it's that old one explained a little better, uh, made internal by Jesus' life, uh, given more power over hell. Uh, so that's why you can have a new song, and it's kind of as it were a new song. It was, yeah, you know, it's got kind of a facelift or something, but, but it's, it's really the same essential thing. That's, that's what that is. Um, so in summary, I would say, good friends, that Jesus' teaching was based very solidly on the Old Testament. In fact, he was the embodiment of that law. That was his law. That was the word that he became. When he became flesh, he became the Old Testament. He lived that through and through, and that's how he became who he was. And yet, he taught many new things. And a lot of the new things that he taught us, and we haven't even talked tonight about all the new rituals, the way that he turned the washings of the Old Testament into the baptism, the way he turned the, the Passover into the, the Holy Supper or communion, and uh, he, he had new rituals, there was a new revelation, uh, and he taught many new things. In fact, in Revelation 21, it says, Behold, I make all things new. The Lord does make, make things new. His aim in all this was quite simply to help us, to free us from evil. So those people in that synagogue recognized that new doctrine because hell was put on the run. He's able to save to the uttermost. He still has that ability to save us. He's still reaching out to us to say, I can help you with your unclean spirit if you want to let me to, and here, let me do that. And here are some steps. Here are the steps of repentance. This is how you lay that aside. Examine yourself. Pray for help from me. Turn and live a new life without that thing in there. And I will help you and I'll strengthen you. And you may stumble, whatever. That's okay. We'll keep going. We'll keep working on it. And we'll figure this thing out. It'll be a process. I can get rid of it instantly, but you need to work it for a long time. Hence all these journeys, all these journeys in, in the Old New Testament. Uh, so his aim was to free us all from evil if we are willing to pay the price of giving it up. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the Father, the divine love, the Son, the divine truth, and the Holy Spirit, 
both of those radiating out into us, helping us in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for coming into this world, for your teaching, for your power over hell. You were able to restore the balance so that we now have the freedom to be with you if we so choose. Strengthen us, Lord, in our repentance. Please bring us forward and show us how we too can teach your doctrine. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, for the obvious reasons. <laughs>